we are doing a sermon series in the life of Abram, soon to be Abraham, of course, but right now he's still Abram. Uh, it's a series about what the life of faith looks like. Because in the, the, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, Paul calls Abram the father of everyone who believes. And so there's something in these stories that teach us about the life of faith, what it looks like with its ups, with, it down, with its downs. But also, of course, in the life of faith, we learn that the constant backdrop to the life of faith is God. It's Jesus Christ. And so as we read these stories about Abram, we're going to read today in Genesis 12 in just a second, um, we, we, we don't just see him, but we, we see Jesus. We see God. We see what God has been doing in the life of faith all the way along. So with that being said, if you would turn to, to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to read verses 10 through 20 together. You can follow along. If you're in the scrollable version, you'll be able to follow along. If you're in the printable version, you'll have to either listen or or look it up in a copy of the scriptures. But let's read together. It says this. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This concludes the reading of God's word. And we're going to spend some time reflecting on this together. Uh, Joseph Bailey, uh, who is the, the one-time director of a publishing house called InterVarsity Press, he wrote the following line. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. Now, I couldn't find a quote in its original context. It doesn't appear to be from a book, so I can't tell you exactly what Bailey meant by it, but he was the president of a Christian publishing house, so I think we can safely assume that it's easy for us to forget things about God when we go through difficult seasons. See, lots of us, we regularly learn things about God during seasons of plenty, seasons of blessing, but of course, like a ticking clock, you know, we swing back the other way, we enter a season of deprivation, we enter a season when God is quiet, we enter a season when the blessings aren't kind of so, so present, so strong. These seasons tempt us towards forgetfulness, towards mistrust, towards a kind of cynical doubting where we feel the need to save ourselves. And in today's text, Abram enters a, a difficult season directly on the heels of one of the most potent encounters a human ever had with God. If you listened last week, if you were there last week, God told Abram he would bless him and he would make him great and he would give him descendants and he would bless the world, all the families of the world through him. And then Abram obeyed God and took God seriously, took him at his word. And then God met him in the land of promise, even though it was filled with enemies and told him, I'm going to bless you right here. So Abram learned some things in the light when God was close and the promises were real, but darkness is about to fall. Danger is going to arrive and Abram's going to forget, he's going to doubt, he's going to endanger himself, and he's going to endanger his family. 
because of his failure to trust God. So I want to take today's text in three parts. First, danger leads to deception. That'll be part one. Secondly, deception leads to complications. That'll be part two. And then third, complications lead to deliverance. Now, if you, again, if you recall last week, Abram has made the journey from, from northern Syria, kind of down, uh, this place called Haran, down into the heart of Canaan. He went past Shechem, even further south, south of Jerusalem, into a land called the Negeb. Now, God had met him when he was near Shechem and said, and made him this promise, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's a tremendous promise. I mean, imagine if you, you moved southwest. That sounds really nice, right? You know, this time of year. Imagine you moved southwest into like Colorado or something. And then when you got there, it was filled with Coloradans. But God told you, it's all right. Like, don't worry. Uh, to your non-existent children, I will give this land. It's a, it's a stupendous promise. So Abram's there in the land of promise. Uh, but then verse 10 has these ominous words. Now there was a famine in the land. A famine is, of course, this a prolonged food shortage. It's usually brought on by drought or by pestilence, some kind of natural disaster. I was thinking about it. Most of us probably have never lived through a famine. I think, at least in, in, the, in the Western world, we've developed ways to mitigate them in our modern times. So I don't think we have a gut sense of what this would have been like. When, you, when you're very worried, when you're fearful that you won't have enough to eat. But it was often the case, in, in those days especially, famines were very regional. If you could get yourself to a different region, maybe there'd be a place that had rain, that had a different food supply. And in the, in the ancient world, Egypt is often this place, mainly because of the Nile River. Uh, even in dry seasons, the Nile's gigantic, this gigantic source of fresh water, and they would use it to irrigate their farmland. Now, Egypt did at times experience famines. If you were with us in the Joseph series, you know, that, that it happened then. But it was more reliable than almost any other place. And according to the end of verse 10, the famine is severe. Maybe people are starving. We aren't sure how serious things have gotten, how, how much food they have left. But somehow, someway, Abram hears there's food in Egypt and decides, according to verse 10, to go and sojourn there. The text doesn't say he permanently moved. That word sojourn means not temporary, but not permanent either. Like moving away to university or college or whatever for a few years. Like you're leaving for a while. It's going to be a season. It's going to be a couple of years. But you might be back in the future as well. The larger thing that's going on here is danger enters the story. A trial comes and it tests Abram's faith. Remember, God had promised him a land and descendants and now famine begins to threaten those promises, and Abram moves. Now, the text is silent on this point, but all the other moves, all the other geographic shifts up to this point were directed by God or affirmed by God after they happened. Remember, God told him to move from Haran. God meets him in the land of promise. Later in Abram's story, God will show up when other changes in geography are needed. But here from the silence of the text... It seems like Abram's acting on his own initiative. So at best, we can chalk this up to natural human strategicness. I need food. They have food. I'm going to move there. That would be fine. But at its worst, this is Abram abandoning trust in God when danger arises. Because Egypt's not the land God has promised. Canaan was the land God had promised him. And if pressed, I think I would lean in the direction of assuming that this move was not born of faith, but born of some kind of mistrust in God. Now, we don't know this for sure, but from the way Abram speaks and from what happens in Egypt, of course, uh, it doesn't seem like God wanted him there. 
And I think we just would have been told. If this was an act of faith, if God wanted him to move or told them to move, I think we would have been told. But either way, no matter which side of this you fall on, if you're on Team Abram and want to give him the benefit of the doubt, that's fine. You, you, don't, you don't need to choose it. Either way, the danger forces action. The danger of the famine forces action. So verse 11, they're about to arrive in Egypt, and Abram, of course, realizes something. He knows he married a beautiful woman, you know, good for him. Uh, and so he thinks the Egyptians will also notice and they're going to kill Abram and, and take her. We aren't sure if this worry was well-founded. The ancient world maybe was more violent. Uh, we don't have any way to know if his, this thinking if, uh, is justified. All we know is he thought this. He believed this. And it motivated him to action. And in the end, he convinces or he compels or he commands something, uh, Sarai, to tell a half-truth and to say that she is his sister. Now, I call it a half-truth because we actually we learn later in Genesis that Sarai had the same father as Abram, but a different mother. Actually, so she's his half-sister. They obviously, and we'll cover this probably in future weeks, they obviously had different thoughts around marrying close relatives than we do. They often married relatives of one kind or another. But Abram's thinking, according to some you know, ancient Middle East you know, expert people that I read, if Sarai's unmarried, so if she's his sister and unmarried, then any man who wanted to marry her would have to negotiate with Abram before taking her. And that would give them time. It'd give them space to either make an escape or make a plan of some kind. So this is likely what Abram's thinking. Uh, it, it, her being the sister, that'll buy us some time. I don't think Abram anticipated what would happen. However, the most damning part of the story for Abram is verse 13, where he tells Sarah, I say you're my sister so that it may go well with Abram and that his life may be spared. You know, perhaps in a twisted way, Abram thinks he's protecting the promises of God. You know, at least if he still lives, then he can still have descendants. But look, if you're, if you're lying and exposing uh, other people to harm to accomplish God's plans, something's gone terribly wrong. If, if you're acting in a self-protective way that actively risks the lives and the purity of, of another person, that's not what the life of faith looks like. And if you're getting other people to lie on your behalf to protect you, something has gone wrong. But here is kind of the pattern. A trial comes to Abram's life. He doesn't really trust God. He takes things into his own hand. The fear leads him to deception out of a desire to protect himself at all costs. And here it is in black and white. The people of God, the people of faith, Christians, those who heed the call of God, they get sucked into this just as easily as anyone else. Dang, danger leads to fear, which leads to deception. I think we need to recognize that God's people sometimes suffer severe famines of one kind or another, sometimes actual famines, sometimes other kinds of famines. And if you think that a faith in God will be a, a shield against the woes of life, you're, you're mistaken. If you think that simply because God has promised something to you, the way that God promised things to Abram, and that, that those promises are going to come quickly and easily without very much trouble, you're mistaken. The whole teaching of the scriptures is God is faithful to us through trials. He doesn't detour us around them. It may be that the trials are a way of growing our faith. Sometimes it's, a, it's just a case of creation is sort of broken and groaning, and, and we get trials that way. But when we get trials... When we get difficulties, is there a response of faith or fear? And if we're being fair to Abram, uh, a response of faith, it may still have involved time in Egypt. Maybe it was fine that he went. Other characters in Egypt go to, or other characters in Genesis go to Egypt for food. Joseph and his family. And in fact, Jesus goes to Egypt to escape some difficulty. Like, I don't think Egypt is the problem. 
the deception involving his wife, placing her at risk to save his own skin, that was a problem. This story might have read that Abram went to Egypt to get food. He told the truth. He leaned on God for protection. He trusted God that he would be faithful to his promises even in a foreign land. But that's not what happened. Abram acted like his own savior. He takes things into his own hands and messes up. You may have been aware, may, may be aware, that this past week was National Infertility Awareness Week. So we kind of set aside in the calendar to remember all the couples who either struggle or who end up, you know, not being able to conceive. Maybe this is part of your story. Maybe if you're a younger person, teenager, maybe it will be part of your story in the future. Statistically, there's actually a decent percentage chance that, that lots of couples will struggle to conceive. Infertility, whether it's a short time or a long time, especially if it's a long time, it's one of those severe trials it calls for a deeper level of faith than most of us feel comfortable with. Because it's one of the few times in life that most Westerners really feel powerless and stuck. With every trial, whether it's infertility, whether it's job loss or sickness or some other kind of thing, there are different paths you can take. One road leads to deeper faith. It leads to, to, to leaning on God despite the, spad, despite the sadness and despite the pain. Whereas the other path leads you away from God, away from faith, and away from trust. And I know that for those of you, especially in the middle of the trial of, of infertility, it's not so easy to say, well, just trust God. That doesn't convey the difficulty of the moment. And I don't want to make light of it, but I do want to remind you that there are important choices to be made in the life of faith. And trials, especially severe trials, severe famines, they have a way of, of surfacing those things. And forcing difficult choices. And look, even Abram, the father of everyone who believes, he trips and falls. When faced with a trial, he goes completely off track. And by the way, I also want you to know that this is off topic for Abram. But as elders, we do pray regularly for people in our congregation who want to and are struggling to conceive. We, of course, pray for children. But we also pray that God would protect your faith. That God would help you to trust. Because look, I've, I haven't been a pastor that long but I've been a pastor long enough to know that this is one of the areas where people get so disappointed with God or so mad at God that they wander off and they don't come back. So there was a famine in the land and the famine led to deception. Part two, deception leads to complications. Look at verse 14. Abram enters the land. The Egyptians are like, yep, she's in fact very beautiful. Uh, the, the princes of Egypt, the royalty, the nobility, that they see her like, wow, she's beautiful. They talk her up to Pharaoh. And in verse 15, Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house. A couple of things I want to point out. First, notice the silence of Sarai. In the whole narrative, front to, end, front to back, whatever, beginning to end, Sarai never speaks. We don't hear from her. She's used as a pawn. She's used as a chess move, first by her husband and second by Pharaoh. The only thing we really know about her is that she's beautiful. But this, this woman will be the mother of the Jewish race. She's a fellow heir to the promises of God. Her name is going to be great too. We're still talking about her X number of thousand years later. But she's not treated that way. She's commanded or compelled to lie and then commanded or compelled to join Pharaoh's house. Listen. This is not the way women are to be treated in the Christian church. A story like this is not prescriptive, but it's descriptive. It tells us what did happen, not what should have happened. Christian women, they're not to be used as pawns, 
They're not to be silenced. They're not to be commanded and ordered around by the men in their lives. Their beauty is not to be used against them. If you are a Christian husband, you're, you're commanded by the Apostle Paul to love your wife in the way that Christ loved the church, which means to sacrifice her, not to order her around. This passage, and, and others like it, they are not recipes for how you use your wife for your own gain. It's, dis- it's descriptive. And the silence of Sarai, I think, is humiliating to the words and the behavior of Abram. He's condemned by her silence. Second, the text says that she was taken into the house of Pharaoh, but the text is using a Hebrew euphemism. And euphemism means like uh, a polite word that camouflages an ugly truth. House of Pharaoh, in all likelihood, means the harem of Pharaoh. The ruler of Egypt doesn't take an exceptionally beautiful woman into his house so that she can scrub some floors or work in the royal gardens. Now, what we know, actually, mostly from the story of Esther and a couple other places, too, is that there normally was a waiting period between when a woman entered the household of a king, the harem of a king, and when she was sort of taken into the king's bed. For instance, if you look at Esther 2, verse 12, Esther has a year's worth of preparation, you know, beauty treatments, training in manners, all sorts of things, before, uh, before she ever is kind of called in to see the king. Sarai only seems to be in Pharaoh's house for a short time. Additionally, in Genesis, it's nearly always recorded when there's a sexual interaction of note. Uh, If it's good, if it's bad, Genesis usually records it. It'll say something like, he knew her, or he went into her, or he violated her, or he lay with her, or or all these, it uses a bunch of different words. None of those words are used here for the interaction between Sarai and Pharaoh. So what I would say is the weight of evidence here is that Pharaoh doesn't sleep with her. But it's a possibility. And again, with like the Abram thing, if you think he did, you know, it doesn't really affect the outcome of the story. You know, we can still be friends. But the the, the bigger point is Abram, by going to Egypt, by lying, he's now put two aspects of the promise of God at risk. He's put at risk the land and he's put at risk his descendants because he left the land. He's not in Canaan. And now his wife, the future mother of the Jewish race, is in the house of another man. So Abram has risked his own honor, but more importantly, he has risked the honor and purity of his wife. Out of a desire to protect himself, things are indeed getting very complicated. And third, as we see, Abram is rewarded by Pharaoh. Verse 16 tells us that Pharaoh, because of Sarai, was generous to Abram, giving him lots of animals and servants. He enriches Abram. The deception has led to complications. And here's kind of the main thing I I want you to take from this. Evil doesn't bring about good. Sinning in an effort to help God's plans along never really brings about God's plans. It nearly always brings about more sin. You know, there have been a number of Christian leaders, and most recently Ravi Zacharias, who upon investigation were were convincing women that sin would help the mission of God move forward. That was a testimony from the witnesses. If you do this thing with me, it will help the kingdom of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. And in the case of Ravi, his personal sins have now brought down what was once a a helpful and expansive ministry. Helped me. So listen, if if your friend or your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend, someone important in your life, if they're trying to compel you to sin, arguing this is going to help God's promises, this is going to help God's plan, that's wrong. That's, That's not right. And if you are doing the same, if you are sinning or trying to compel someone to sin because you think you are you are helping God's promises, that's not right. 
If you think, well, if I watch pornography, it'll stop me from committing adultery. Like that's just, that's not going to end well. That's not how it works. Sin and faith, both of them compound and generate interest. The more you sin, the more sin you are both attracted to and the more sin you usually have to commit to cover up the first ones. And alternately, the more you exercise faith, the more you are spurred on in that faith. Listen, you are always becoming someone different. You're always moving in one direction or the other. And if you're into any of the brain science behind it, you're always like laying down myelin sheath. Like you're always rewiring your brain to be more and more of something. And so sin and faith, both of them are compounding. Sinning in one area to help you be more godly in another, that doesn't work. It's like brushing your teeth but eating Oreos simultaneously. Like it's, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to end well. And Abram imperils God's promises through his foolishness and sin. The danger has led to deception. The deception has led to complications. And now part three, the complications lead to deliverance. So here we are. We're in a heap of trouble. <laughs> they're, they're in Egypt. Sarah is in Pharaoh's house. And because of her, as we've said, Pharaoh is enriching Abram. He's giving him all kinds of things. As the text points out, both male donkeys and female donkeys. I'm not sure why that's important, but Pharaoh's giving both. Maybe the female ones are really valuable or something. I don't know. But listen, do you remember what God promised Abram last week? One of the things God promised, that he would make Abram great. Guess how God is keeping his promise? He's using Abram's sin and foolishness, along with the sexual desires of Pharaoh, to enrich Abram. See, remember, Abram leaves Canaan in the midst of a severe famine. It's quite likely he has lost a lot of wealth, because his wealth was probably mostly in animals and possessions. Maybe a lot of them died. Um, But even here, in a foreign land, God is blessing him. Excuse me, enriching him, growing his household. And it's not because Abram made good choices. (laughs) It's in spite of Abram's choices. God turns evil on its head and he bends it so that it serves his purposes. I've been reading the biography of of Jack Miller, who's a famous Presbyterian, which means none of you probably ever heard of him, but he was a famous Presbyterian pastor in the Philadelphia area a generation or a generation and a half ago. And he, he he had a fantastic impact on the world, was by, according to his biography, a great preacher, a great leader and missionary. But I was, towards the end of his story, it was interesting. He was in Uganda. He was serving the Presbyterian Church of Uganda. I can't remember the exact name of it. But he has, he has this severe heart attack while in Uganda. And it almost kills him. And he has to spend weeks recovering in Ugandan hospital. He has to get this special flight back to the United States. And even when he got back, he took, I think it was a year, 18 months off of preaching and leading. And even when he returned, you know, he kept a much lighter schedule for the, end of it, for, for the rest of his life. But guess what he did with his time? The first thing he did, according to the biography, is that he repaired and grew his relationship with his wife and his family, who had felt terribly neglected over the years. And secondly, he actually took the time to write down what he'd been teaching all over the world. And because of that, much of his teaching, which is now called Sonship or Sonship Theology or Sonship Discipleship Course, it's been passed down. And people like me have gone through it and and learned it and been, you know, had it been useful in our lives. In other words, God took something bad, a major trial, a severe, almost deadly heart attack, and used it for good, not just in Jack Miller's life, but the life of the world. And God is doing the same for Abram. God's taking Abram's sin and his foolishness and and, and everything else, and he's making it serve his purposes. So God blesses Abram and makes him great. 
And secondly, in verse 17, God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. That word great means something like overwhelming. It means that whatever came into their household, whether it was a disease or a pest or whatever, it was so severe, it made it clear that this was the finger of God. It wasn't an ordinary outbreak, an ordinary disaster. It was a great plague. And the text says at the end of verse 17, the plagues come because of Sarai, Abram's wife. In other words, when Abram won't defend his wife, God will. When Abram puts her in harm's way to save his own neck, God rescues her. God promised Abram descendants, and he intends to make that happen through Sarai, and he will not allow her to to be long in the household of another man. He will not allow this deception just to sort of go on and on. And in the end, Pharaoh, you know, wiser than Abram at this point, he realizes the plagues are from God. He somehow figures out who Sarai is. He calls Abram in and he rebukes him for lying to him and deceiving him. And he sends Sarai back to Abraham, says, you know, take her back, you know, and kicks him out of the country. And we actually didn't read chapter 13, verse 1, but it says Abram leaves Egypt and returns to the Negeb, to Canaan. So here are the things God promised Abram last week, that he would make Abram great and bless him, that he would give Abram descendants in a land, that he would bless all the families of the world through Abram, and he would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. And in these verses, in this story, God does just about everything. He enriches Abram. He protects Abram's line, though they don't have offspring yet. He curses those who are endangering Abram and his line, even though they did it unknowingly. And in the end, he uses that foreign ruler to throw Abram back into the land of promise. The only part we didn't get, the only part that's left out, is that Abram does not bring blessings to Egypt, but curses. Abram's disobedience did not lead to good, but to evil for the people of the earth, for, the, for some other families of the earth. And that's sad. It's a disappointment. Abram might have blessed the people of Egypt. He might have been a light to them, but his time was sort of totally misused there. See, the big theme of this text, this story, is Abram is faithless, but God is faithful. Abram endangers, God rescues. Abram hides, God shows up. Abram flees, God rests, God returns him. There's an interesting verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul is writing to a younger pastor named Timothy trying to encourage him. And Paul quotes what he calls a trustworthy saying, which means it was some kind of motto, some kind of creed, some sort of saying that they said to each other. We aren't exactly sure where it came from, but, but this is what, how the saying goes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11, verse 11. If we died with him, we will live with him, referring to Christ. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So he said, if we deny him, God will deny us. If we are faithless to God, God will remain faithful, because he cannot deny himself. Now, that's a tricky knot to undo. But here's what I think it means. To deny God means to refuse to believe in him or serve him. Sort of a a final, resolute stand against Jesus. It's to live and to die saying, I'm not a Christian, I don't want to be, I don't want to follow God, I don't want to believe in him. And if we take such a stand, the Apostle Paul says, well, we have no place with God. He will also deny us. If we deny him, he will deny us. But then the, the, the non sequitur, if we are faithless, he is still faithful. See, I think faithless is, being, is different than deny. I think to be faithless implies a lesser, more temporary kind of infraction against God. 
It implies a time of belief, a time of failing, a time of sin, but one that can be returned from because God will be faithful to us, faithful to his promises. Because this is the big question I have about this story. How does Abram make it back in to the favor of God after he sins, after he falls on his face? Why is God still gracious? Why does God still fulfill his promises to him? And in turn, us, how can we know that God will take us back? When trials make us afraid and our fear leads us to sin, how do we know that God will be faithful to his promises to forgive us and to love us even when we are faithless? Well, the reason we know it is because of this. That Abram failed the test of hunger in the wilderness, right? He chose bread instead of trusting God. But there was one coming who would pass the test of hunger in the wilderness. When Jesus would tell the tempter, man does not live by bread alone, but lives on trust in God. We know that Abram failed the test of honor in Egypt. He opted to preserve his own life, even if it meant sacrificing another. But Jesus passed every test of honor, even to the point of laying down his own life. Abram was faithless, but God was faithful because the greater Abram was coming who had passed each and every one of the tests of faith and lay down his life for all of us who fail the tests. See, the reason there's a way back is because of Jesus. The reason that that God can be faithful despite our faithlessness is because of Jesus. See, remember at the start that Joseph Bailey quote, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light? That sounds good and it's it's sort of true and, and, and it's encouraging. But the real secret of the Christian life is this, that at times we all forget. When the darkness comes, we, we all forget. When the kids are crazy and the pandemic, you know, is even more pandemic-y than usual and a friend turns on us and our desires overwhelm us or when we are afraid, listen, we all forget what we learned in the light. We all lose heart. We all try to save ourselves. We all flee to Egypt. We all lie to protect our own necks. And so what we need is the one who didn't. So yes, when you read the story, try to be honest. Try to be honor your spouse. Don't flee to Egypt during a famine. Like sure, yes, yes, yes. But when you don't, when you don't, remember that because of Jesus, All of us who doubt and are cynical and are self-serving and are deceptive, we get God's faithfulness instead of a curse. So wherever you find yourself this morning, know this, there's a way back. Don't let your faithlessness turn into denial. Instead, repent, change, flee to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks. And we are grateful to you for this story that shows even even our father in the faith, Abram, fleeing, being deceptive, being faithless, not trusting you the way he ought to. Like Abram, may may we return to you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that Christ has died, that you might be faithful and forgiving to us. Please help us to learn. Please help us to grow. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.